Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. This week we are on episode 39 of, as Claire said earlier, of six because obviously those that have been listening to this for a while know we were only ever intended to make six episodes. However, we just keep finding more and more interesting guests to speak to, and this week is no different. This week we're speaking to a fantastic historian, but before we get on to who we're talking to today and what we're talking about, Claire, just wondering, is there anything happening in the world that relates to the witches of Scotland in some way? It's strange you should ask in that entirely unscripted and unprompted question there, Zoe. So casual. So cash. And, and casually I shall simply respond, yes, something okay. actually really important has happened this week in relation to witchcraft, and that is that the Human Rights Council, the General Assembly of the United Nations, has passed a draft resolution in respect of elimination of harmful practices related to accusations of witchcraft and ritual attacks. So the Human Rights Council has said that guided by the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations, reaffirming the fundamental principles of equality, non-discrimination and human dignity, they have passed this resolution in respect of current day witchcraft accusations, what they've essentially done is they've said, taking into account all that we stand for effectively, all that we stand for anti-discrimination, treating people equally, that they express their concerns over the harmful practices related to witchcraft accusations and ritual attacks, which have resulted in forms of violence, including killing, mutilation, burning, coercion and trafficking persons, torture, and other cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment, particularly for persons in vulnerable situations, including women, children, persons with disabilities, older persons, persons with albinism, and saying that these forms of violence are often committed with impunity. It expressed its concerns also at the existing widespread discrimination stigma, social exclusion and forced displacement experienced as a result of witchcraft accusations and ritual attacks. And it urges the states involved in the UN to condemn harmful practices related to accusations of witchcraft and ritual attacks that result in human rights violations and urges those states to take all measures necessary to ensure the elimination of harmful practices amounting to human rights violations related to accusations of witchcraft and ritual attacks, and to ensure both accountability and the effective protection of all persons, particularly persons in vulnerable situations. And it calls upon states to ensure that no one within their jurisdiction is deprived of the right to life, liberty or security of person because of religion or belief, and that no one is subject to torture or other cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment or arbitrary arrest or detention on that account, and to bring justice to all perpetrators of violation and abuses of these rights in compliance with international law. And it invites states in collaboration with relevant regional and international organisations to promote bilateral, regional and international initiatives to support protection of all persons vulnerable to harmful practices amounting to human rights violations. And while noting that providing protection, attention to local context is critical. It invites states to draw attention to this issue 
And it also says the state should be careful to distinguish between harmful practices amounting to human rights violations relating to accusations of witchcraft and ritual attacks and the lawful and legitimate exercise of different kinds of religions or belief in order to preserve the right to freely manifest a religion or belief individually or in a community with others, including for persons belonging to religious minorities. So I could I could go on at length about that, Zoe, but there's a number of really interesting things that I think we can pull from that. First of all, the UN acknowledges that the people who are being accused of witchcraft around the world are those vulnerable groups that we have identified through history, really, as the same vulnerable groups. The only additional set of people in the vulnerable groups I saw was people who had albinism. What's also very interesting about that was not only is it great that the United Nations has come forth and said that and said we are effectively requiring states to go and do something about this, to put things in place and report back to us on it. But also it's identified, as the Scottish government did in the response to our petition, the way that um, people are being dealt with are in a discriminatory way. Those vulnerable people are subject to these more than anyone else. So if you're not in a vulnerable category, you're less likely to be accused of that. And again, it's women, it's children and it's older people, the exact same as it was in Scotland. What's really interesting is that they've made it clear that what they're not saying is there's any problem with people having their own religion or their own belief system. That's absolutely fine. Those people have to be protected and a balance has to be struck between the rights of people to go about their lives as they want and their religious beliefs as they want. Also the right to be protected from the abuses which we talked about there. So it's been described as a historic resolution by the United Nations, the first of its kind. And I went on to Leo Igwe's Facebook page just to check to see what they'd said about it. And he welcomed it, but also said, and it's something that reflected in what we talked about him before, the words are great, but they need actions behind them. I mean, you know, I'm sure a great deal of work went into making up the statement and so on there, and there's been research and things, but if it's not actually carried out into communities with people like Leo Igwe on the ground who know what's happening and, and who can say, right, this is where it's happening. It's such a thorny issue for people out with the continent of Africa or out with India or out with wherever these different pockets of, of accusations are happening to say, oh, I'm going to sort of bring in here and, and get involved in this situation. It's a difficult one as a person that's not from that country because you don't want to feel like you're coming in as like the, you know, the kind of the white colonial thing saying, oh, no, that's not how we do it kind of thing. But if people go back and listen to Leo's episode way, way back in, oh, I don't know, that was quite an early one, wasn't it? So round, <laughs> round about episode maybe nine, eight, something like that, quite a while ago anyway. He really lays it out and says, you know, we need people out with these countries to say, no, look, this is no longer acceptable. It's not it's not civilised to treat people like this and to hurt people like this. And he really needs the pressure of sort of the international community because it's a tricky one, I think. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the same sort of things, as you've pointed out, Claire, that happened here. It's people that are vulnerable for different reasons that are being picked on and othered. Um, and there's lots of psychological reasons, obviously, for that, but that doesn't mean it's any more acceptable. So I really hope that this does help and that some real thought is put into how it's going to practically translate into action. Yeah, I mean, it does. The, the resolution does put an obligation on states to do something. Now, there are lots of obligations on states to do lots of things, so it's only one of many. But it, it does yeah. mean that someone will have to report back and someone will have to to talk about these things, but I absolutely agree that it requires the people from within the country itself mm. to address these things. And just to let our listeners know that Zoe was only 20 episodes out, seeing it's number nine, it's episode 29 that Leo- Seriously? Yes. <laughs> it's, only, it's only 10 ago. It was only 29, uh, it's only, yeah, we're, we're now on 39, yeah, so it was only 10 episodes ago. Gosh, time flies, eh? Yeah. <laughs> you're on a broomstick <laughs> well okay 
So that's that's all really great to hear. That's really promising and hopefully that'll translate into good action. So that's good. Today, we're gonna go away obviously from the present and we're gonna go right back, talk to our guest today. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce our guest and then we're gonna do the witches of today because that relates to who our guest is and his area of study. Can I say, Zoe? Yes. You always keep it secret who the guest is all the way through. Because it's exciting. Yeah, but the thing is, see when I'm uploading it to the internet, I, I yeah, that's true. I type their name as as like the listen, Claire, Claire. <laughs> I'm I live in the moment, okay, and the moment that I'm in is <laughs> is a tumbling morass of horror, <laughs> and I just try to keep my head above water, and I'm just in the moment. Yeah, you're right though, because everybody knows fine well who the guest is. <laughs> All right, okay. So as you know, today's yes. guest is Dr. Alan Kennedy, who is a lecturer at Dundee University in the History and Archives and Information Studies Department in the School of Humanities. So Dr. Alan Kennedy is an interesting fellow because one of his particular areas that he's interested in, he talks about this at the beginning of the podcast, is about criminality, which I, I think is, is criminality the right word, Claire? Yes. Is that a word? I just made that up. Nope. Study of study of crime, looking into Scottish criminal justice. So for me, that's particularly fascinating. But of course, in that, he's looked at the witch trials and, and various sort of issues there. So one of the things that I think it's worth noting as well is that Dr. Kennedy is also consultant editor of popular magazine History Scotland, which some of our readers may know. And if you don't know, this is good to know. One of their recent issues was all about witchcraft and the witches in Scotland. We even got a wee mention in the magazine. So I think I just wanted to mention that there so that people could go and find the magazine and have a wee read of it. So I think that covers some really interesting aspects. So he wrote about these witches or accused witches in his blog that's on the Centre for Scottish Culture, which is a University of Dundee site. And we'll put a link up to that. It's well worth going and having a detailed read of the article. And I'm just going to highlight some hit things, some aspects here to name women as witches. OK, so in 1662, at the height of the largest of the four witch panics in Scotland, in the great witch hunt of 61-62, the horrors of witch persecution came to the tiny county of Kinrosshire, and in particular to the Crook of Devon, which is a wee place roughly equidistant between Perth, Stirling and Dunfermline. Those accused of witchcraft included 13 people. So there was Agnes Murray, Bessie Henderson, Isabel Rutherford, Robert Wilson, Bessie Neal, Margaret Lister, Janet Payton, Elder and Younger, Agnes Brew, Margaret Hogan, Janet Brew, Christian Garvey and Agnes Pittendrich. The allegations against them included that they had cast evil spells causing people who had wronged them to suffer the falling sickness and that they had rendered someone mute by offering him enchanted snuff, which is quite interesting and captivating and I'm sure would be quite useful if that was such a thing. I have asked you, Zoe, if you'd read the book um, Dr. Norell and Mr. Strange or is it Mr. Strange? No, we were talking about that yesterday, weren't we? No, I've got it in the house, but I need to read it. There was a world where enchanted snuff was a thing, then the gentleman would definitely have enchanted snuff then. Mm, interesting. So these people were accused, or some of them were accused, of rendering someone mute by using enchanted snuff. They also, and this is something that we're very familiar with, they also renounced their baptism to be baptised by the devil. Alan records that Margaret Hogan described the baptism as, you put ane of your hands to the crown of your head and the other to the sole of your foot, and delivered all in between to Satan's service. So we've talked about this before, haven't we? The idea of the devil putting his hand on the head and foot yeah. and how they change a little bit in different tellings. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because it shows that there was a narrative, but it wasn't It wasn't kept clear. It's like when people are told one story and then it passes through lots of people, the story changes. So we mm -hmm. have, um, and I'm not sure... Um, you know, which of these came first. But as we've said before, one of the reasons that people had to um, renounce their baptism is you couldn't be baptised and have the devil um, do, do, sorry, David, sorry. One of the reasons that, that they had this 
symbolic baptism with the devil is you obviously wouldn't be a baptized Christian person and do that. So you obviously had that had to be interrupted in some way. And you had to, instead of giving your life over to God, give your life over to the, the devil. So there's this symbolism of putting the hand on the head and the foot and all in between belonged to the devil. The difficulty is we cannot tell from the various different stories the confessions, always doing the inverted commas with the bunny ears when we see it, yeah. the confessions move about depending on which person. It's either the devil who puts his hand on a person's head and a person's foot and then the person renounces their Christian baptism and gives themselves over to the devil. Or in other stories, the person puts their own hand on their head or on their foot and renounces it. So it just shows you that people were no doubt being asked about the same things, like did mm -hmm. you renounce your baptism? What did, what did he do? Did the devil put his hand upon you? Did you do something? And the people in answering have slightly changed the story. So what we might call in a court of law, Claire, leading questions or leading the witness. Absolutely, Zoe. Kelly Law, it paid off in my teens. <laughs> Can I just record for the general public, because Zoe and I can see one another who are recording. Zoe looked very pleased with herself after. Very pleased with myself. Pleased. Any opportunity I get to pretend that I am a lawyer in court in LA in my mind. I'm happy. Okay. It is true, though, you know, we're not pushing it too far to see that it looks like there would be particular lines of questioning. There's a shape that the narrative takes, you know, and that these these things will, as you said, will have passed to different communities and people will have known kind of what a confession should sound like. Yeah. I mean, this was their TV. This was their radio. This was yeah. this was everything to them. This was both horror and both what shaped their narrative and conversations, what shaped the gossip. Everyone mm. knew what it was that, that a witch was said to have done or, you know, and, and as we know, people, when they're being asked about this in a state of some distress and possibly sleep deprived as well, are likely yeah. just to recount these sorts of things. Yeah. Mm. I know, it's horrible. Anyway, so back to this awful, awful situation. So all the people that were accused confessed, and again, heavy, heavy quotation marks around the word confession, to being in a coven with each other. And all but two were, as history re records, strangle it to the death by the hand of the hangman and thereafter their bodies to be burnt to ashes. So horrible. And it again brings me to this point, and I know that I'm a wee bit fixated on this, but the method of execution, it actually says there is the hand of the hangman. Does that mean literally his hands around their neck or does that mean done just as work done by the hangman from what the experts have told us so far it appears mm -hmm. to have been done with some kind of rope something like that okay. yes uh -huh. yeah it's just oh, just it's too awful when you contemplate it and it's i know i've said this um, a million times on here but it's one thing to just sort of have this kind of knowledge floating around in your mind but when you bring it out and you look at it and you really think about what that meant in reality to these people, I mean, it's a small community. There's all these people, the 13 people that are accused, they all confess the situation. They're all supposedly in a coven together. And then the community knows and is probably largely, I would suppose, would be, would be approving of this. The people that they knew from their community were then strangled to death and their bodies were burnt. It's just completely crazy when you think about it but of course they would be wanting it to happen because they were absolutely terrified that those people yeah those people were working for the devil yeah so crazy so of the 13 margaret hoggin actually escaped the hangman because she died before they could try her so i mean she didn't escape she just no, left this mortal coil she I, was 80 so she's really I, pretty elderly i would think for those days as well yeah so sorry to interrupt there and again that is somebody who, if we got a pardon, wouldn't mm -hmm. be affected by the pardon because she was never convicted. But she died having been tortured. Um, and she was 80. She was of a good age, particularly yeah. for that time. That would have been a good age, perhaps not the same now. And that's why we want an apology as well, to apologise to her. Yeah, to cover those people that weren't under that first area. Yeah. And then another of the accused, Agnes Pittendrich, was pregnant, so she wasn't executed. So... There is this idea, Claire, that you've mentioned that there's a term in English law called pleading your belly or pled her belly. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about that in Scotland? 
I don't actually, and would invite any scholars or anyone with an interest in it to get in contact with us. I have not seen that played as a plea in Scotland. That doesn't mean it wasn't done. It just means I haven't come across it because mm-hmm. when I'm looking up the history of pleas that can be taken, for example, a plea to an insanity or such a plea, I am looking for specific links to the modern day. Now, because we don't have was that execution as a sentence anymore, I'm never looking up books to see how people were executed in the past and what their defences were. So please, if anyone does know about that, get in contact. There's a lot more information about it online in relation to English common law. And if you uh, just Google plead your belly, a lot comes up on it. One of the particular things that I saw when I looked at it, there were what were called a juror of matrons. So a group of women who assisted in childbirth or who knew things about childbirth were assembled in order to be able to identify whether or not a woman was pregnant and effectively certify them as being pregnant. Because, of course, perhaps for many months, although a woman would think herself to be pregnant or was pregnant, you wouldn't be able to tell. And if a woman was going to be executed um, and she, inverted commas, pled her belly, unless there was obvious proof of that to the eye, as it were, unless it could be visibly seen that she was pregnant, these um, women had to get together and decide whether or not she was pregnant. And to me, every time I think about it, when I was reading about it, it was it was just handmaid's tale. I mean, I've, I've not... Yeah, I've not seen a scene like it. And in fact, I can't actually watch The Handmaid's Tale because yeah. I just find it too alarming, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, it's, very, it's very distressing. I, I'm watching it with my daughter just now and we are watching it really slowly because we just can't can't knuckle down to watch it because it's just too stressful. It's yeah. too awful. But I think there, you know, we've talked about this before, obviously in the past about The Handmaid's Tale and about how Margaret Atwood at the time said that she didn't write anything in the original book that hadn't actually already happened, so that everything was taken from life. Um, So I think that there's definitely echoes of that. And I suppose they would have to prove that she was pregnant because any any sort of fertile-aged woman could say she was pregnant to get out of it, but I'm not really sure how they they did that. It's essentially horrifying. Probably best not to linger on that. So, yeah, so that's what happened there. In 2012, the witch's maze was unveiled at Tullybowl Castle as a memorial to those indicted at Crook of Devon. The website fifewalking.com describes a short walk you can do near Crook of Devon, which takes you to the site of Tullybowl Castle Witch's Maze, which was constructed by Lord Moncrief of Tullybowl Castle as a memorial to the innocent witches, it says, that, like that's a quote, who were executed. I don't know, I'm a bit, I think it's, I think it's nice that there's something there marking it, um, and I've not been there, so I don't know how it's done. It could be done really tastefully, but I don't know. It just it, It's just a bit strange to do something for your sort of amusement and, you know, entertainment. I, I totally I understand. Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. On, on one view, I think it's very good that there's a marker so that people go, oh, what's this about? And perhaps yeah, it's worth it. do something. Um, there may be, for all we know, a plaque or a sign there. Has any of our listeners been there? Um, if they have, please do let us know. Please let us know if there's a, a plaque or a, a sign. That would be interesting. And I think that would... So, yeah, it would be interesting if anyone has actually been there or gone for that walk to let us know. Or if they decide to do so now that they can get out and about and walking... Report yeah, because we do. People do send us um, photographs of different places that they've gone to, so would be great. And then we share them if we're able to share them. So that would be interesting. It's not that far, Claire. Maybe we should do a wee road trip. We should. We have now got so many people to go and see. And thanks for joining us today. Our podcasts are available on all the usual social media areas, including. We probably need a a longer road trip. Well, okay, so going on to today's guest who has already been revealed. So um, our guest today, our, ge- our guest today, drumroll, is, um, is historian Dr. Alan Kennedy. Hello. <laughs> Hello, very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So um, it's really nice to have you on. I'm wondering if, first of all, if you can tell our listeners what what you do, what your area of interest is, please. 
Certainly. Um, well, I am lecturer in history at the University of Dundee, and I specialise in, in early modern Scotland, which is obviously the period of the, the, the witch hunts. Um, now, I should put my hands up straight away and say that, um, unlike some of the, the speakers you've had on here, I'm not an, an expert in witchcraft and witch hunting specifically. My expertise is, is more broadly in sort of social and political history in early modern Scotland, and I'm particularly interested in crime. Um, and punishment of crime, of which, of course, witchcraft is, is part. It's considered one of the most serious crimes in, in early modern Scotland and early modern Europe more generally. So that's that's how I come at, at, at this, this this topic, not as, as a witchcraft specialist particularly, but as um, uh, somebody who's interested more broadly in crime and punishment and has been sucked into the witch hunt um, as a result of that. Yeah, can I say, Alan, very, was very generous when we contacted him because I think we met on Twitter and you were very generous uh, when we spoke to you and said, I am not a specific expert, and then gave us a list and contact of specific experts, many of whom we've already got contact with, some of whom we hadn't. So that was really, really kind of you to do that. But we enjoy your interactions on Twitter, and particularly we enjoy the fact that sometimes you just come on and just quash some of those myths that uh, seem to go around. I mean, Twitter's a great place for it, but we, we like your style on Twitter, just cutting to the chase and saying, nah, things like that didn't happen. So I certainly enjoyed that. Very glad. As Claire and I have said before in the, in the podcast earlier, we initially bonded over our love of true crime and definitely think that the witch trials do kind of fall underneath that umbrella. It's not immediately obvious. But I think the the fact that people get into this and then start researching it and look at all the details, and of course it's through the kind of the legal side of things that people actually discover things. What was it that brought you particularly to be interested in the crime element of this period of time? Well, I, I wish I could give you a sort of deeply intellectual and philosophical answer, but but really it's just because the material is so interesting. I mean, I'm, I, I I sympathise entirely with people who who spend their leisure time reading and reading about true crime and watching documentaries because there is something inherently fascinating about transgression um, and about the way society more broadly responds to transgressive behaviour and, and also how it defines transgressive behaviour because of course that's that's a slight that's a movable definition um, witchcraft is a great example of that we don't consider it a crime anymore for i think very sensible reasons but they emphatically did in the early modern period so i think the, the thing that drew me into to crime and witchcraft more generally is is just because it is fundamentally interesting but from that basis you can i think use it to tell you quite a lot about the values of any given society and about the tools that that society has available to it to control people's behavior and to try and enforce those norms of behavior so i think crime as, as, a, as a historical topic is actually a really powerful one for for unpacking the society you're interested in as well as being something that's that, that's just interesting, we all we all like sort of peering through the net curtains and seeing what people are getting up to um, that they shouldn't be getting up to. Uh, and I think that's that's the thing that drew me in, um, uh, aside from the, the significant intellectual use of, of the topic. You said that the crime of being a witch and of witchcraft is one of the big crimes. What else was sort of similarly sort of seen as being like a biggie at that point? It probably won't surprise people to know that the big crimes in, in the early modern period, witchcraft aside, are the same as the big crimes um, today. And in particular, we have to think about the so-called four pleas of the crown. And um, these are the four offences which are reserved to the jurisdiction of, of the crown and the central criminal court. So they can't be tried by some sheriffs or justices of the peace or whatever. They're, they're regarded as the four most serious crimes and have to be tried by the most senior courts. So those are, are murder, um, rape, uh, willful fire raising and robbery. Robbery in this case just meaning um, usually a form of theft that is either targeted on on animals, um, which are regarded as really significant item, or is exacerbated by by excessive violence or some other factor. Um, so those are the four, if you like, most serious crimes in the sense of being reserved to central criminal jurisdictions. There's also other ones like treason as well, for example, which is not one of the four pleas, but is is obviously a serious crime. It is usually tried um, by by central courts, often by parliament as well. Parliament um, is still a, a, a law court and steps in sometimes to try to try treason. Um, and witchcraft is, is, is there as a sort of 
not quite a one of the four pleas, but um, we won't make it into this later. It has a it has this kind of strange um, procedure for trying witchcraft that is unique to witchcraft, which sort of sets it apart as a very serious crime, but kind of also on its own because of the nature of it, because it is a unique uh, offence. Um, so those are, I suppose, the the cluster of of offences. Which, if you were to look at the most serious crimes that are tried in Scotland. By that, I mean, look at the sort of central criminal courts and see what they are dealing with. It's going to be some combination of those sort of four or five offences again and again. And were all those capital offences, Alan? Uh, yes, they were capital offences. Um, I mean, the thing is, technically speaking, a lot of things are capital offences in, in the early modern period. Things that we would regard as not being crimes that are likely to attract death penalty are on paper, capital offences. So things like um, adultery, see various forms of adultery and fornication are on paper, capital offences. Now, in practice, they are almost never treated as capital offences. You're, you're very unlikely to be executed, certainly for fornication. In fact, you're very unlikely to be tried in a civil court for fornication. You tend to be pulled up before the Kirk session. Um, similarly, with forms of adultery, so-called notorious adultery, which is particularly kind of flagrant um, or, or repeated or public forms of adultery. Again, that's supposedly a capital offence in practice you're probably going to be fined or banished or some other kind of punishment but that doesn't apply to the four pleas and to to witchcraft and treason they they are capital offenses and they are almost always uh, attract the death penalty unless there's particular extenuating circumstances which there almost never are so yes these are capital offenses and and unlike some other capital offenses are treated as capital offenses can i just ask you a quick question about banishment each episode we try and name several people that were accused as, as witches to try and kind of give them their identity back sort of thing. So people think of them as being people rather than this just sort of lump number. But we've occasionally come across somebody that was banished, like I think maybe two or three times. What really did that mean? I think of it in fairy tale terms. But what, what did it mean in, the, in sort of the practical, like real life in Scotland? There, there are two levels of banishment, I suppose. The first one is just simple banishment, and that is an order usually to leave the kingdom, sometimes to leave a particular locale within Scotland and never return. So you'd be banished from Edinburgh, for example, you're told never to come back to Edinburgh. More usually, it's banishment from the kingdom, or sometimes the king's dominions, which I think can, can possibly be interpreted as even more than just Scotland, because of course the king um, at this time um, is King of England and Ireland and various colonies as well. So that's just a simple order, leave the kingdom and you usually have to give a, a promise that you will turn up on the shore of Leith or whatever on a given day and, and, and take ship. Sometimes though banishment is coupled with an order for transportation, not just leave the kingdom, it's you will be transported to the colonies overseas, usually that's to, to North America um, and that would involve you, you know, being sent to a particular ship usually and, and or a particular captain undertaking to transport you um, overseas. Um, so what it means essentially is that you have to leave and you're not allowed to come back, usually under pain of death. Um, occasionally there will be other potential punishments. If, if you come back, you might be fined, for example, but usually it's under pain of death. It's a lighter punishment in the sense that you, you still live, in an age when a lot of people, when when moving a large distance is a significant undertaking, um, it's still a very significant penalty to have imposed upon you. I came across one um, verdict, which said, and I've only ever seen it once, it said, half guilty. Have you ever seen that before? No, I've not seen that, that, that terminology. I mean, you often see in criminal cases, somebody will be convicted of a sort of a lesser crime than the one they are initially indicted for. So, you know, if, if, if they're in, um, indicted for, a classic example is infanticide. If a woman is, is, um, is indicted for infanticide, she might be cleared of the infanticide, but um, uh, convicted of concealing the pregnancy or convicted of fornication or adultery or something like that. Um, so, but, but I've, I've not seen that terminology of half guilty. That's, that's, that's really interesting. No, I'd love to know. I just saw it once. I'll, I'll send it to you. But what yeah, it might I mean, be is half guilty of half of the libel or something like that. Could well be. That's me. Yeah. They're not all over. And you just mentioned um, there as well uh, something that we might come to, which is the procedure mm -hmm. for witchcraft trials. Now, of course, that absolutely fascinates me. So sitting with my full glasses, wig and silks on, please do tell us about the procedure of prosecuting and defending a witch. 
develops quite a unique procedure, certainly by the early 17th century. It's a bit different in the 16th century. It's particularly in the 1590s when witchcraft is beginning to, to take off as an offence, if you like. It's, it, it's a little chaotic at some points. But from the early 17th century onwards, we developed this, this quite distinctive procedure, um, which is similar to the procedure for, for um, trying other offences, but also different in important ways. Um, and what, what sets it apart is the requirement to have a so-called commission from the Privy Council. Now, your listeners may well have, well have heard of this. What this means is a, an order um, from the Privy Council for a trial to take place, usually for the, the trial of named witches. So it's not usually a couple of times that there are examples of this, but it's not usually for, you know, go and try all the witches in East Lothian or something like that. It's usually there are specific people um, that have been accused of witchcraft and we are the Privy Council is commissioning a trial either in the locality so that they will appoint a panel of local people to act as, you know, one-time judges on this this trial or they will commission a trial to take place in, in the central criminal courts, the Court of the Justice General, later the High Court of Justiciary. Now, obviously, in order to get to that point of a commission being granted, some legwork has to have been done you have to present the Privy Council with evidence that there is a reasonable case to answer. So what tends to happen, therefore, is that you get all sorts of activity going on at the local level before an application is made for a commission. So usually, the procedure is usually broadly along these lines, that an accusation will emerge, usually within the context of a parish or, or, or sometimes a borough or some other local unit. But an accusation will emerge somehow. Then an initial investigation will, will take place Often, as is the auspice of the local church, the minister in the Kirk session, sometimes borough authorities if it's in a town, sometimes other local office holders. But it's usually the church, it seems. They will do things like collect witness statements of the activities that the witch is supposed to have, the alleged witch is supposed to have performed. They will also try and extract a confession because that's regarded for most of our period as the most important form of evidence. Theoretically, those confessions should be extracted freely. So, you know, the, the witch will freely confess. In practice, there are ways and means of persuading, shall we say, um, which is uh, alleged witches to confess. Now, theoretically, torture is legal, of course, throughout, throughout this period, unless specifically sanctioned by central. But there are ways and means around that. You can, for example, the classic procedure is to keep the alleged witch awake for a long period of time to stop them from sleeping. And um, that that is uh, quite a significant form of torture, but it doesn't leave external marks. So you can sort of pretend <laughs> that you didn't torture this witch. I think there are some examples of, of more physical, more violent tortures being imposed, but these are technically not allowed. It doesn't mean they didn't happen, but they're technically not allowed. So once you have constructed your case, once you've got your witness statements and your confession, if you've got one, you will then apply to the Privy Council for this commission, this one-time trial of the named witch or witches. And the Privy Council will either grant or not grant that commission. If it does, then you'll go to trial. Um, and if you get to that point, if you're an accused witch and you get to the point of a trial taking place, that's probably curtains for you because there's quite a lot of evidence that earlier in the process, potential cases will collapse. There won't be enough evidence. The Privy Council will reject the request, whatever. But if you actually get to trial, most witches at that point are, are from that point are convicted. Uh, and then obviously you'll get to the point of sentencing and it's usually the same sentence that will be imposed on, on witches, certainly from the early 17th century onwards, which is strangulation at the stake followed by burning of the body. Um, so very rarely live burning, burning, usually burning after strangulation. Um, and that procedure of collecting evidence in the locality from start to finish, from the Privy Council and then trial and, and execution from from the early 17th century onwards that is pretty much the standard procedure that nearly all scottish witches will go through two questions for you mm -hmm. first of all why did they need to get commissions was there a particular reason why commissions were required and secondly is the privy council the precursor of the privy council which sits down in, in london now is it the same court yeah. Um, well, to take the first one first, why they need commissions. Um, and people like Julian Goodyear have, have, have written about this um, and various other scholars as well. And the best explanation seems to be, or, or a couple of explanations. One is is, is possibly because witch, witch hunting come, becomes bound up with the process of state formation. The government perceives there to be a need to have some control over the trial, the prosecution of witches, as a kind of state forming um, tool. That's one explanation. The other is that the Privy Council kind of steps in and requires these commissions to be to be won 
largely as a reaction against the chaos of the 1590s, particularly the, the, the witch hunts right at the end of the 1590s, which had been quite sprawling and, and, and a little bit chaotic. Um, so there's some suggestion that perhaps this is an attempt to stop that chaos of, of just sort of multiplying witch hunts being repeating in the future. I mean, it doesn't particularly work because there are significant as bursts of, of witch panic later on in the 17th century. But those, I think, are certainly the, those are the explanations I've come across that are most persuasive, that it's, that it's a sort of state-forming issue. It's also a, a sort of public control and, and keeping the, the judicial system um, functioning in a reasonably orderly way. And the Privy Council itself, it's the current Privy Council, the UK Privy Council, is, as far as I'm aware, more in evolution of from the English Privy Council than the Scottish one. The Scottish Privy Council was abolished in 1708 and by that point had developed, I think, a, a slightly more significant role in Scottish life than the English Privy Council had by that point in modern government. The best way to think about the, the Scottish Privy Council is it's, it's the closest thing there is to the Cabinet. It's not a perfect analogy, but what the Privy Council does is it's effectively the executive body in Scotland because the King's not there. I think we can make a case for the Privy Council having quite a lot of leeway in day-to-day -day government. Of, so the Privy Council is really responsible for implementing policy and in some cases formulating policy as well, theoretically under the guidance of, of the Crown, but the Crown's not there after 1603, so of Scotland. And witch hunting and the control of witch hunting comes within that remit. So no, a bit, a bit different, I think, from the current UK Privy Council, which is more an offshoot of the English one. Can I ask as well, when you mentioned there that the, the method of execution was strangulation, I've asked this from a couple of people, is it strangling by hand or is it hanging or garroting? As far as I'm aware, it's usually garroting. Other scholars might correct me on this, but as far as I understand it, the procedure is you're tied to the stake, ready for burning, but then before the pyre is lit, you're garroted from, I think, from behind. I think the idea is that you put a loop over the head from behind and, 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 and garrot. Um, but it's, it's definitely not hanging because they would tell us if it was hanging. So as far as I know, it's, it's strangling by with a garrot. And I don't think it'd be strangling by hand because that would be quite a demand on the executioner. Not an easy thing to do. So I think garroting is probably what we're, we're seeing happening. It's here. still it's still the sort of a peculiarly intimate method of mm. execution, isn't it? Because it, you'd have to be relatively close to the person mm -hmm. to garrot them, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely it is. And it's, it's, it's not unique to witchcraft, but it's almost unique to, to witchcraft, right. isn't it, as a form of execution. There are, I, I can't remember exa precise examples, but I'm sure I've come across in a few other instances where people are, are sentenced to be, to be strangled, but it's, it's very strongly associated with, um, with witchcraft. And there are some other crimes as well where you see particular execution methods becoming associated with them. I mean, the obvious one, for example, in the late 17th century is execution by drowning which becomes associated with religious nonconformity, particularly as committed by women. It's never as widespread as, as uh, executions for witchcraft, um, which obviously cover a longer time period as well. Were they done in the Norlock in Edinburgh then? Is that why there's confusion, Claire? I'm just thinking back to what you said before about a lot of people have this idea, the wrong idea, it's, it's erroneous, that, the, that women were, when they were accused of being witches in Edinburgh, they were drowned there, but that's not true. So is that more likely to be where it was a religious crime? Possibly. I mean, the, the executions for religious nonconformity are more associated with places other than Edinburgh, so the southwest Fife. There are definitely some examples of, of drowning, of, of execution by drowning in the Norloch, not, as you say, of, of witchcraft, um, right. as far as I'm aware. But I've certainly come across one, and again, the details elude me at the moment. Um, it was a man, actually, who was sentenced to drowning in, in the Norloch. So that can be used as a form of execution but not for witchcraft, as far as I'm aware. Humans are just endlessly horrifying. I mean, like, why? <laughs> Presumably people just couldn't swim, so they just threw them in water thinking they couldn't mm. get out. I don't, it's really weird. Why would somebody, that occur to them as a murder method? At some point, why does somebody go, right, we need an execution method. I know, let's drown somebody. Well, I, mean, I think the, the thing to remember is that there's, all, there's usually a reason for, for these decisions being made. And quite often you will come up with unusually theatrical methods of execution in order to send a message. So right. the classic example, for example, if, 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 um, if you're a robber, you know, if, if you go around 
um, stealing people's cows or, or whatever, you'll usually be executed. But sometimes if it's a particularly notorious robber or bandit, you'll see that being embellished. So, for example, there might be an instruction that they're to be hung on a be hanged on a particularly high gibbet um, and they're there to have the right hand cut off before execution or something. Now, that's not just wanton cruelty. I mean, it is some, I'm sure there's an element of that. You know, you want, really want to make this person suffer. But it's also to send a message that this person's offences were particularly beyond the pale and have been punished as such. So you lot better watch out, don't do what they did, otherwise this this horrible thing is going to happen to you. The same kind of thinking brings is what brings you to burning of a witch's body and also burning of the bodies of certain other particularly serious criminals. The idea there is to completely purge the world um, of, of the evil that this is contained in this body, which is why, for example, in cases of bestiality, which of which there are um, a, a rather uncomfortable number in early modern Scotland, you usually have the person committing it almost always a man, of course, who is executed. But then the animal is also put to death and their body is burned. And that's the reason. It's not because the animal is judged to be guilty. It's because their body has been defiled and polluted and, and it's now a vessel of evil and needs to be purged from the world by burning to ashes. And that's the same sort of thinking, I, I think, that that, um, that feeds into the, the burning of witches' bodies after they have been strangled. It's because we need to yeah, purge... We and we've been told as well that it's because there was a fear, and I don't know if this was consistent across the entire range of the witch trials or if it was a particular point, but there was a fear that the devil might reanimate the corpse mm. and, and, you know, wreak, wreak havoc in mm. the place. Have you ever come across that they did with the ashes? Because we haven't found anybody that, that has a, a good idea of what mm. happened to the ashes. No, I must say I'm not, I'm not sure what would... I mean, my assumption was just that you know, ashes are left to scatter to the to the four yeah. winds, but but maybe there was something more formal done on them. I've certainly not come across any specific indications in judicial records, for example, that you know, in order to collect the ashes and bury them or anything like that, the story just seems to end with burn the body to ashes. Well, that's what we've heard. Is, mm -hmm. is nobody seems to have any any further. So it would make sense that it was just it was rubbish at that point. And just let mm -hmm. it go. Maybe I don't so. think it's very sensible. If it was me, I'd be gathering the ashes up. If I was that fearful, I'd be putting them in some sort of a locked box. <laughs> if I was that superstitious, I, I I don't understand why they thought at that point the bad sort of magic that was around it would be gone. It's odd, I think. I, I think well, I I, horror I, films. So they, they hadn't had a training in horror films of rats, <laughs> you know, so that's why. Probably. Yeah. A burned body is a destroyed body, so that what they're after is the destruction of the body, and, and ashes are no longer a body. So I, I suspect that's the thinking there, that at that point you've purged the world of evil. I think that Zoe has a very, very vivid imagination, and it's thinking, why? Why, if the devil can actually reanimate somebody, could he not just do it from dust? I often think that as well. I often think, if the devil is going to wreak revenge on his person on earth being called a witch and going to be put to death, surely it would be more convenient to do that before you've killed them. You know, <laughs> surely giving them the power to come back and, and wreak revenge would be more helpful at an earlier stage, but all these people yeah. were just, just left for themselves. It's terrible. One of the things we spoke about um, online, or I saw you speaking about online, was the fact that in the modern day, people kind of think that the people that lived a few hundred years ago were somehow different from us. Um, and Zoe spoke about this recently on a, a, a on one of our podcasts. So you had an example, didn't you? Um, about about how we view um people from the past as being very different to us. And one one way in which that it just kind of a light bulb went on for me a wee while ago during I can't remember which podcast it was a recording. But I just suddenly had this kind of realisation. I think it was also running alongside the fact I've just read the book quite recently, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. That's about Shakespeare and particularly about the death of his son, Hamnet, who inspired then the, the play, presumably Hamlet, because apparently the name Hamlet and the name Hamnet were completely interchangeable. So the, the, the two names are the same. But anyway, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about that often on, on historical programmes that I've watched, you know, I've picked up on the fact that, you know, then in those days, people might have like eight, nine, 10, 11 children and quite a lot of them would die. And I'd never really thought particularly about the fact that, you know, each death would be a horrific death, just as it would be if something happened to one of my children. I just thought of them as a kind of a factory of of workers that you would yeah. just keep 
popping out these kids, you know, and, and you know, expecting them to die so you wouldn't be too invested. And then I had this kind of light bulb moment of Zoe, you idiot, you know, obviously that would be horrific. It would be awful. It'd be, you know, just as bad as it would be as it would be in the modern day. And I think it's something that is really easy to fall into of thinking uh-huh. of people in the past as being, I don't know, like shadow figures or not quite human in the way that we are. And of course that's complete nonsense. Uh-huh. Do you find that in your work that you have to you have to say to people, well actually they're not really any different to us. Yes, yeah, absolutely, and, and, and I completely agree. And, and the child child death thing is, is a really good example because there there was a long standing assumption that you know until you were a, a child was at the age of five or something that most parents didn't really care very much and didn't invest anything, which is just not true. You can see that if you look at letters or, or diaries or whatever, it's usually of, of more elite people because these are the people who leave diaries and letters. It's very clear that they um, that they uh, react badly and with a huge amount of sadness when when young children die. Um, and so, yeah, the, the people are, I think, fundamentally similar to us. And, and you're right that we have to avoid falling into that trap, and, but, but, but people do. But what's different, of course, is the world they live in, the belief systems that they have. And that means that if you're, if you're looking from the outside, sometimes their behaviour can look very strange which hunting is a perfect example. Why on earth would you believe that people had magic powers and that the devil would appear to them and invite them to these, these, these witches' Sabbaths and all? It looks just, just crazy. The point is, of course, that makes perfect sense within the belief system of the time. So these are not people who are sort of much more credulous than us, who are much less intelligent than us, who, who aren't as sophisticated as us or anything at all. It is people who are just like us or, or very similar to us, but live in a different world and have different ideas about how the world works, have different understandings um, of, of everything around them. And I think once you get, once you grasp that, it becomes much easier, I think, to understand the phenomena you're dealing with, but it also alerts you to the fact that you can't be just sort of arrogantly dismissive of all these idiots who are doing stupid things, because you have to be much more empathetic to these people and try and understand that they are fundamentally the same as us, but they are responding to a different set of, of circumstances, a, a different intellectual framework, different cultural framework as well. So yeah, I think I think there is a tendency to forget that and to kind of laugh almost at people in the past for believing daft things, but that's not helpful. Um, and it doesn't help you understand something like the witch hunt, um, which is a, a much more internally logical phenomenon than, than it might first appear. What do you make to the sort of the modern I think it's a kind of a rewriting of history that at the time the women, the, like, you know, the majority of them obviously being women, obviously it wasn't all women that were convicted or accused of, of being witches, but that the women that were involved were mostly kind of healers and midwives and they were pagans and that people didn't really understand their their religious, you yeah. know, their setup. they were against the church, whatever. What do you make to that? Yeah, you see that quite commonly. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to map onto the, the Scottish experience. Um, there are some examples of, of accused witches who seem to be practising as, as healers or, or charmers or, or whatever. And there are perhaps some examples of, of people who, have, who are practising um, non-standard forms of religiosity being caught up in this. But those are unusual. Ordinarily, the best predictor, I suppose, being, um, of being accused of a witch is not charming or, or healing. It's what's called scalding, scolding, a practitioner of verbal violence, if you like to put it in a euphemistic way. So basically, basically a woman who is regarded as not behaving in public in a sufficiently kind of demure way, or a woman who has a reputation of arguing or swearing at, at, at people, that is the best predictor of being accused of witchcraft. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that any woman who... Um, who you know, argues in public with somebody is going to get pointed at and people are going to scream witch. That's not how it works. But if you're looking for a predictor of somebody who is going to be be accused of witchcraft, that is a much better predictor, a kind of long history of that kind of behaviour. That's a much better predictor than healing or charming. Because usually what happens in Scotland is that people who are who are known as as healers, who, who are reputed to have the ability to, to um, or, or, or to know about charms, they are either going to be caught up by the, by the Kirk session and given punishments that are, that are to do with repentance. So, you know, go and stand in sackcloth before the, the congregation for several Sundays in penance for your, your heathenistic, heathenistic practices, your superstitious practices. 
or they're going to to be allowed to just kind of put it along in the community and, and not really be be bothered. These people are not generally regarded as proto witches, or, or certainly in Scotland, or are not generally regarded as people who are practicing witchcraft. They have a much um, less sort of um, frightening niche in, in society. So if they are punished at all, it's probably going to be by the Kirk Session or the Presbytery, and it's probably going to be through public repentance. They're unlikely to be caught to be accused of, of, of witchcraft. It's much more likely that, that um, women who are regarded as transgressing feminine norms um, in, in other ways are going to be caught up in witch trials. So I think there might be other parts of Europe where the charmer and the healer is more likely to be to be caught up in the witch trials, but in Scotland that doesn't seem to be a, t- a typical pattern. If they are punished at all, it's probably going to be by the Kirk Session or the Presbytery, and it's probably going to be through public repentance. We heard a great phrase, a great description, which I've added to my Twitter bio. I think it was Mary Craig who does a lot of reading of records, and um, she said that she'd seen the word come up again and again, quarrelsome dame, which mm. makes me think of a 1950s Jim, James Cagney movie rather than uh, 17th century Scotland. But I absolutely love the phrase, but it, it's so sad that that seems to be the phraseology that was used for, for people. That was effectively one of what she called the four proofs, one of the first types of tests to see whether or not you might be a witch was identifying you mm. as a quarrelsome dame. Yeah, I mean, that, that word quarrelsome or quarrelling, that, that is um, intimately bound up with, with witch hunting because it's, that could, that you often see cropping up in indictments of witches or in or in uh, witness testimonies about about alleged witches. It's an unfeminine behaviour in inverted commas. You're not supposed to be quarrelsome. You're not supposed to argue in public to to chastise people to scold people if you're you're a woman. And um, and so transgressing those those norms is one of the things. Quite aside from the stuff to do with with magic or or relationships with the devil. Um, quarrelling is 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 important, and, and that's really interesting. That that um, the sort of the domestic and the behavioural aspects of this doesn't ensnare and endanger men, because of course that's that that's regarded as as can almost stand alone from the more demonic or or or, 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 or magical um, aspects. And I think that underlines the fact that a lot of historians, um, I think maybe perhaps have gone too far to say that witch hunting is just women hunting. I don't think that they're entirely the same thing, but it's very clear, it seems to me, that a big part of the witch hunt is to do with grappling with what femininity is and how you can, how you, what role women play in society, what proper feminine behaviour is and how you police that. I think witch hunting seems to be very clearly bound up um, with with that. And that goes for sexual behaviour as well, of course, because it's a big part of, of witch hunters, um, is the fear that women are are giving themselves in body to the devil, which uh, seems to very clearly map onto fears about female promiscuity, about the, the, the dangers, inverted commas, of, of unbounded female sexuality. And it's all part of this um, this strong focus that's bound up in the witch hunt of how do you control women and how do you ensure that their behaviour, uh, as a sort of fact of life, that, that women have the power to ensnare men and drive them in. To lead them astray and you have to be very vigilant about that in all sorts of ways yeah we've we've come across that time and again haven't we what's the is it the Knox? we are the port and the gate of the devil i think was the john Knox mm. phrase that was used mm-hmm. yeah and, and this, this goes right back to adam and eve of course doesn't that I mean the whole the whole um uh dynamic of 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 the the adam and eve story is a, a woman opening herself to sin and then leading the man to sin as well, and you see that cropping up again and again and again. The idea that women um, are are can lead men astray, but also the flip side of that, women are weaker than men and therefore more open to the corruption of, of the devil. It seems to be a bit of a contradiction that women are are so weak that the devil can easily take them over, but but strong enough that they can lead men astray. It's it's it, it, it's a bit weird, um, but yeah, I mean that that's a very long standing thread in 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 Western Christian thinking, and it, it seems to be very clearly bound up in the witch hunt as well. This is absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, it's it's not just the fact that it was sort of 85 or so percent of those accused were women. I think the, uh, that draws women to be so involved with it. I think and, and in the current sort of the um the fight to have women pardoned and memorialized and so on. I think it's the fact that we don't really seem to have moved on that far. You know, like obviously women aren't being garroted and burned anymore in our country. 
But um, I think there's still this idea about being a quarrelsome dame. I mean, now, obviously, it's been kind of reappropriated, whereas I think a lot of women get a, a kind of a, a like kind of a dark humoured enjoyment of of identifying themselves as being a quarrelsome dame, you know. But I do I do think that it still strikes a chord because there is still a problem there that we're, we're not equal in the way that we would hope to be by this stage, you know, so many hundreds of years later. But I think I think what's really interesting is once you start thinking of the people that were accused as being real people and individuals with families and jobs and lives and struggles, and they were just doing the best they could in a chaotic, in some ways, kind of environment. It doesn't feel a million miles away, you know, like we're in a situation now where where many people don't really have an awful lot of confidence in our government and in the choices that they make. And we're kind of following along with different things that are happening, but feeling like we've been duped in some ways. So I can see that there's absolutely parallels where people are just trying their best to survive and get through a difficult patch. And um, I'm just glad that we don't we don't um, necessarily kill people these days. At this stage, who knows what could happen <laughs> with what's happened in the last couple of years? Things could still go horribly, horribly wrong. We're doing quite a good job of killing ourselves at the moment, though. I, I would say, yeah. you're not taking care of uh, of the pandemic side of things. Mm. Yeah, that's what's so scary. I think um, when Alan was talking about um, we are the same people, it's just the circumstances that change, the belief system round change. And, and if the belief system around change could change again, then women could still find themselves in a very vulnerable situation. And that's really part of why I think it's really, really important to ensure that we go back and address this period of time in history. Now, Alan, we'll put you on the spot because we know not all historians agree with the idea of going back and addressing history in, in a way such as a pardon. Do you have any views on whether or not it's good or not? And don't just say, it's all right, we don't need you to agree with us. <laughs> just because you're on the show, feel free if you don't think it's appropriate to tell us. Um, well, I mean, it is definitely important to to um, to go back and look critically at these um, at these these issues and try and figure out um, what, what was underpinning it and try and make sure that we recognise the, the tensions and, and issues um, and that we address those. I mean, the Obviously, we're seeing that happening very strongly with Black Lives Matter movement and with questions around um, uh, Britain's involvement in, in, in slave trade and in slavery. So I think it is it is really important to address these. Um, I mean, the, the the issue of of, of a pardon. I'll, I'll leave that to others who, who are more uh, sort of sort of conversant in 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 the use of this this as a kind of judicial tool. I mean, I think it's. Um, one thing I would say is that whether it's entirely sort of necessary, I'm not sure, because we all kind of know that these women were innocent. Um, we know that they, were, they weren't witches. Um, and I think possibly the danger in just a, a straight pardon is that you end up not addressing the other issues that are bound up in the witch hunt. I mean, it's not just that these, these women were, were convicted of, of witchcraft, but there were lots of other things that led to that. There, there are issues like we've talked about, misogynistic um, views about like women we've talked about um uh, or we could talk about um the other things that lead to um to panics about which ideas about the devil for example is regarded as a very real physical presence um so if we were to go down the the line of, of pardoning which is i think it would be important to um to not see that as the end of the process not see that as right we we've, we've done it now we've, we've sorted it all out um we we the the justice has been done we can now wash our hands of this issue because there's so much more um, and so many more problematic issues bound up in the witch hunt than simply the fact that these women were, were executed for a crime which we now know um, or are fairly confident at least does not exist um, so I think it, something would have to be used carefully I think is, I, is my, is I my response I, I totally agree with that uh, Alan I mean the idea that we would get the pardon and think right job done yes. that's it move on all is well now in society. <laughs> there, there is, as um, both of you have alluded to, there is still a, a lot of problems in society and women still aren't equal. And while that's happening, I think we still all have a, a very big job to do. Mm. Um, it, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you this morning. I've really loved thinking a wee bit more about what it was to be a woman um, women transgressing social norms of the time and how uh, that could 
place them in a, a position of danger, in particular, just being a person who does what is the very, very fundamental human right that we have, which is um, our freedom of expression. And the fact that someone's freedom of expression could get them into such terrible, terrible difficulties is, is something which is really, really sad. But um, I've absolutely loved um, hearing about um, what you've had to say to us. And we do hope that you will stay in contact with us throughout the process and uh, keep on challenging and myth-busting on Twitter. <laughs> I will try my best. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to talk to you. It's been great. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us today. Our podcasts are available on all the usual social media areas, including Twitter and Facebook. And Claire, have you made any TikToks yet? I have not made a TikTok. Come on. We've been <laughs> talking about TikToks for ages. The clock is ticking and talking. Oh, that was marvellous. And also on Instagram, Claire, you've got the Instagram going as well. Yes. Um, Twitter is the best place to get, I think, in touch with us if you want to have a wee chat about anything. Our Facebook is just a page, so it's just that's just really for us to kind of put up information. But people do sometimes message us on Facebook, although we're not as quick at getting back there. But Twitter definitely is a good place if you if you want to have a bit of a chat with us. Before we go, though, I just want to say if you're able, if you could keep the 5th of September free, if you keep that date free, tune in in a fortnight for episode 40, which will be another fascinating episode. And Claire, have you got anything you'd like to say in closing? I have nothing further to add, Your Honour. <laughs> now a judge. It's very <laughs> exciting. Okay, bye. Bye. Mysteriously, I'll give you no further details about that just now, but I will, Claire and I will be getting in touch over the socials over the next week about that, won't we, Claire? Zoe Vendatotsi, you have teased the listeners last exactly. week and this week, so we're to yes. keep the fifth of September free. Will, will it be all yes. day or? I think probably like sort of mid to late morning to early to mid afternoon, okay. I would say. Okay. Yes. Becoming quite yes. specific now. Okay. Just to lay anybody's fears, I'm not going to come around your house, everybody. Um, it's not that. <laughs> so we, but we will, we're just, we're just putting some final touches to something. So if you keep that date free, and we will let you know in due course why. Interesting. I look forward to it. Well, you know, Claire, so don't act like I'm just going to do a surprise to you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That'd be very strange. But OK, so thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>